Good morning, Orangewood family and friends from north to south and east to west. Thank you for joining us to worship our glorious God together this morning. Pray with me, please. Creator, Father God, the world is in dire need of you more than it knows, more than it can admit or acknowledge. And Father, we, your people, we're also in dire need of you more than we know and more than we are willing to admit or acknowledge. Father, I would ask this morning that you would move by your Holy Spirit and take us deeper in to a relationship with you, aligning our hearts and minds with your heart and mind. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us to pour out into this world the grace and truth that comes from knowing Jesus Christ, our true Passover lamb. And in Jesus' name we pray. The text this morning that I'll be preaching on is Mark chapter 14, 1 through 26. It marks the very beginning of the Jesus' suffering narratives as written by Mark, with the apostle Peter being his eyewitness source. Today's passage is kind of like the calm before the storm, but if you look closely, you can see the forces at work behind the scenes, the good and the bad. In fact, in this text, two people will stand out besides Jesus, of course, one looking like the beauty and one looking like the beast. Our setting centers around two dinner parties, which Mark puts side by side in this narrative. One is a fellowship meal where Jesus is actually a guest, and the other is a Passover meal which Jesus serves as the host. In both dinner narratives, Jesus' conversation centers on the behavior of a dinner guest. In doing so, this passage serves to compare Two kinds of people. One who has entrusted themselves to Jesus as their Savior King, and one who refuses to do so, denying Jesus his true identity as the Son of God. So let's start reading through our passage. We'll do it by reading a section, and then I'll discuss it and talk about it, and we'll keep moving through the whole passage that way. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Jesus has come to Jerusalem and is staying with friends outside the city in the town of Bethany. He's come to observe Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread with his followers, but his greater purpose is that he's come to suffer and die at the hands of the godless religious leaders, and on the third day, rise again from the dead. Although he's told his disciples about this at least three Times They've been unwilling to accept it. The spiritual climate in Jerusalem is dark 
as evil is manifesting in the hearts of the religious leaders and even in the hearts of the inner circle of the 12. We learn that Satan himself is at work in these events, blinding people from seeing the truth of their need for Jesus and also seeking to destroy Jesus and thwart God's work through him as if that were possible. So let's read on verse three. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So this takes place on Saturday night, the night before Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. On this night, he is with friends and he is at a dinner gathering in Bethany in the house of a man known as Simon the leper. Or should I say, Simon the ex-leper. Lepers don't host dinner parties, don't live with their families in their homes, don't live in town, and certainly don't socialize with anyone except other infected lepers. We can assume Simon is a fully healed and restored ex-leper by the miraculous power of his dinner guest, Jesus, which is probably why he's hosting this dinner to begin with. So in John's gospel, we see a parallel account of this event, and we learn some other details about the dinner, about some other guests that are present. Jesus' close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who also live in Bethany, are at Simon's house too. Lazarus, whom Jesus recently raised from the dead, was seated at the table with him. Martha was doing what Martha does. She was serving. And Mary was where you might expect Mary to be. She is at the feet of Jesus. Only this time, she is likely the one standing as Jesus is reclining at the table. And Mary is about to do something that makes her the topic of Jesus' conversation with his disciples. Mary has what is likely an heirloom with her. It's an alabaster flask, and it's filled with very expensive, fragrant ointment. We're told by John again that it's worth a year's wage and is likely the most valuable thing Mary owns. So what does she do with it? She breaks the flask, pours out its expensive contents, and anoints Jesus' head and feet. It's customary in that day for the host to have his guest anointed with some fragrant oil on the head and perhaps the feet by a servant. What makes this scene so unusual is that it is Mary, that the ointment is so valuable and that she proceeds to wipe his feet with her hair. This behavior is met with different reactions, but before we explore it, I want you to see 
seven traits, seven traits of Mary's act of devotion towards Jesus. So let's look at them. The first one is this, lavishly generous. Mary spends most, her most valued earthly possession on Jesus. She shows everyone how supremely valuable Jesus is to her by breaking this heirloom, this nest egg, and emptying it out on Jesus himself. Number two, her act of devotion is irrevocable. This gift can't be taken back. Once the bottle is broken and the contents poured, it can't be retrieved. This transaction is final. Number three, her act is wholehearted. Mary is fully engaged while doing this. She's engaged at every level with Jesus, emotionally, intellectually, and certainly spiritually. Number four, vulnerable. This expression of devotion leads Mary to divest of her sole source of personal financial security and even social capital. Her behaviors caused even her friends and her fellow followers of Jesus to think critically of her. Number five, selfless. Her deed is done with self-forgetfulness. She is solely focused on the needs of Jesus and she serves him at full expense to herself. She spends not only her financial capital, but also her social capital to honor and glorify Jesus. Number six, submissive. She is there to be a servant. She is the one anointing Jesus's head with oil. She serves Jesus as her servant, as her savior and her king. She submissively prepares for his death, prepares him for his death and burial, even if that's not what she would prefer to be doing. And number seven, caring. Mary is thinking not of herself, but of what Jesus needs at the moment. Jesus is heading into suffering and death. And it is as if she and him are the only ones in the room truly attentive to this reality. She is caring for his momentary, immediate needs, knowing where he is heading. And it is clear that he is most appreciative and encouraged by it. So here's a question. How is Mary able to do this? In the face of all these distractions and the deceit, where is Mary getting the ability to be so loving to treat Jesus like this? She loved him this way because she had first been loved by him this way. Scripture tells us that we love because he first loved us. He loved her so effectually, it enabled her to respond in kind. Mary loved Jesus with the love our Savior and King had for her and for us. When we trust Jesus as our Savior and King personally, he fills our hearts with his love. He puts his spirit inside of us to indwell there and lead us into all truth. He enables us to love him and one another 
the way he loves us. So if this is true, we should be able to look at these seven traits and see Jesus's love for us. Can we do that? Yes. Number one, God's love is lavish, lavishingly generous. Yes, it is. We have a prodigal God. Prodigal meaning recklessly spending, spending recklessly. So we have a God who spends recklessly on the objects of his affections, us. We see this in the father of the prodigal sons, don't we? He does not reckon the sins of his sons against him. Instead, he forgives graciously and keeps lavishing on them, calling them into a loving, intimate relationship with them, even when they act like all they want is his stuff. Number two, irrevocable. God's love is eternal and unchanging. Once you believe and trust in Christ, God's love is yours forever. Number three, wholehearted. Jesus loved us with his whole self and his whole life. He gives all he is and has to redeem us, adopt us, and care for us. Number four, vulnerable. Though he was God, Jesus emptied himself and became a human man so that he could die in our place and rise in our place, giving us eternal life and reconciled relationship with God forever. Number five, selfless. Jesus is selfless, selflessly offers himself up as our sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He becomes our Passover lamb to die and suffer in our place that we might live forever with him. Number six, submissive. Jesus lived in full submission to his father. Every act, every word, perfect obedience to his father. And number seven, caring. Jesus shows that he cares by meeting our greatest need with the greatest provision himself. So what are the other's reactions to Mary's devotion to Jesus at this dinner party? Let's read on. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So even amongst Jesus's followers, there are critics and cynics of authentic, wholehearted worship going on in front of them. Are they convicted of this display? Are they threatened by it? Or are they just clueless? Are they clueless and their religion is mostly about them and whether or not they're doing everything right? The cold fact is this. When you don't see your deep need, you can't see or appreciate the greatness of the remedy that satisfies those needs. Unless you see your sin problem for what it is, you'll miss the breadth and beauty of the solution for who and what it is. If you don't think you need a remedy, a savior, you're not going to be looking for him. Tim, Tim Keller quotes, uh, quotes this way. Until one recognizes how deep one's problem runs, there's no chance of finding its solution. That is the position in which the disciples find themselves 
They're still unaware of their need of radical mercy. Until they are aware of it, they cannot taste of it. Until they taste of it, they are incapable of giving themselves in any way in which the woman gave herself. Let's read on with verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Jesus comes to Mary's defense against those who criticize her. Jesus calls Mary's devotion beautiful. The love that she displays is actually God's love being reflected through her. Let's look at some scriptures that show us the extent of Jesus' love for us. Jesus impoverishes himself. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus sacrifices himself impoverishes himself so to pay the ransom price to purchase us back from a life of slavery to sin and death. Next, we see scriptures that talk about how Jesus pays to rescue us. You are not your own, Paul says, for you were bought with a price. And again, in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Our sin created a cosmic debt that justice demands payment for. Sin and rebellion against God carry a just penalty, which is death, separation from God and all his goodness. Let's look now at one more verse. This scripture, Paul tells us in Ephesians of the author of the offer of salvation that God offers us as a free gift. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus purchases redemption for us and then offers it to us as a free gift to be received by faith in him. So it is here in our story where the beast begins to reveal himself. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So after gazing at the beauty of Mary's worship, we now see the ugliness of the beast as displayed in Judas. Not only is Judas' self-absorption and arrogance and critical spirit 
unattractive, we see an even deeper, darker power in his moves. Satan himself is working here. I want to show you in a couple verses from the Gospel of Luke. Look at Luke 4.13. It says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This was at the end of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Satan tempted Jesus three times, and Jesus overcame him through the power of the word of God. And at the end of that time, this is what it says. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now we move ahead in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 22 to the parallel passage of today's passage in Mark. And it says this, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, and they feared the people. Look at verse 3. Then Satan entered the heart of Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. It is chilling to see that behind Judas's scheming to be his own master and provider, to run his own life at the expense of denying the truth about Jesus's identity, there is a more insidious, wicked one using him to perpetrate evil. When we ignore or worse, deny the truth, sin results, damage results. Again, back to verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here we are at the second dinner gathering in our passage, and it is the Passover meal. Jesus is talking about Judas, but he's doing it in veiled language. Notice, he tells his disciples that the betrayer is one of them. He does this four times. The problem is, each one of these four one statements, each one of them actually qualifies every single disciple. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. One of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, they all 
were qualified by these four statements. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is purposefully trying to help his disciples see their brokenness. Notice their sinfulness. Recognize that they too need a savior, a redeemer, a Passover lamb. And notice that they're sorrowful. They are. Each one says, it is, is it I? Yes. That's the answer to their question. Yes, it is you. Judas's betrayal is particularly heinous. Betraying Jesus with a kiss, the kiss of a friend. And yet every time we sin, it is a betrayal of our master because we have to reject him to disobey his teaching. We are all like Judas, much in need of a savior. Let's look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom. So here we are. Here we are at the Passover meal with Jesus the night before he is crucified. And what is Jesus doing? He's using the Passover meal, the meal where the Jews were encouraged through this commemorative meal to remember how God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. That through the 10 plagues that God inflicted on Pharaoh and on Egypt, God was loosening Pharaoh's grip on the Israelite people. And through these plagues, it came down to the last, the 10th, and it was the most severe. It was the plague of death. And the angel of death was coming and the angel of death was given instructions to slay the firstborn person and the firstborn animal in every household in Egypt, Jew or Egyptian. Moses was given instructions to give to the Israelites the way that they would be saved that night from the angel of death was for them to each take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, kill that lamb, take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the door frame of their homes and then roast the lamb and eat the lamb. And if they trusted God's direction for salvation, that night when the angel of death did come, that angel passed over each home with the blood of the lamb marking its doorpost. So this is the meal where Jesus institutes for the first time the Lord's Supper. And he, by his own authority, adds verbiage to this liturgical meal. And he adds these words that we just read. Take, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is he is acknowledging to his followers that he is the once and for all true lamb of God come to die for the sins of God's people. 
So let's look at these two points. Jesus becomes our personal sacrificial Passover lamb whose shed blood marks the doorposts of our hearts so that we don't die in our sins but are mercifully passed over by God unto new life. And in the Lord's Supper, we symbolically and spiritually eat and drink of the body and blood of the Lamb of God in remembrance of his death. By this meal, we're spiritually fed and strengthened. John 1.29, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So how do we, beasts, become beautiful? We become beautiful by believing in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here it is. First, there's bad news. The bad news is this. As beastly as we are, God has a problem with me because I'm a sinner like Jesus, like Judas. God is righteous and can't accept me like that. God is just, so he must exact punishment for every sin. In God's economy, the punishment for sin is death, internal, eternal separation from him. So there's nothing I can do to make myself unbeastly. There's nothing I can do to make myself acceptable to God. So that's the foundational bad news, which makes the good news wonderfully good. And here's the good news. God is love, so he provided a substitute, a savior, to take my punishment for me. No sinful human could be a perfect sacrifice, so God the Father sent God the Son to earth. Jesus is God the Son who became a man, lived a perfect life, and willingly submitted himself to an unjust death on a cross. And as Jesus hung on that cross, God the Father, knowing all about me, and my sins took my sins and put them on Jesus and punished him in my place so that Jesus received God the Father's wrath for my sins. Then Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day, after paying the debt penalty for all my sins, he came back from the dead, never to die again. Jesus now offers complete forgiveness and this gift of eternal life to those who repent of their sinful condition and trust him to save them by being their perfect sacrificial lamb, thus saving them from sin and eternal condemnation and saving them for a new life with him. So the question this morning is, do you see the beast within can you now own it as yours and acknowledge the ugliness of it? Will you trust Jesus to be your Lamb of God? Here is a prayer that you could pray if you were in this position. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a Judas. Every time I do what I should not do, and when I don't do what I should do, I'm a sinner before you. And I need your saving grace. This morning, I humbly receive Jesus as my true Passover lamb. I submit to him now as my savior and my king. Come into my heart and make me new. In the name of Jesus.
I pray. The last verse of our text says this, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I'm reminded of an old hymn that speaks of the beauty and the beast in its lyrics. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Father God, thank you for your word. By your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts. Set us free. Strengthen our trust in faith in our true shepherd king, the true Passover lamb, Jesus. Amen.